Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Aaron Lammer. I am here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hi, you guys. Good day. Is this our last show before the holidays? Is that correct? Sure is. We're going to take a couple of weeks off, put some of our uh, favorite episodes of the year back through the feed over the holidays. This is the last one, last one of the year. In that case, I want to wish everyone a very happy holidays. On the show this week, I talked to Daisy Alioto. She is the co-founder of Dirt, which is a newsletter. It's a newsletter empire. At one point, she said, I uh, might be mangling this quote, that she wanted to build the Condé Nast of newsletters, uh, which sounds like something I want to talk about on the show. So I invited her on the show. She's acquired a, a newsletter, which I think has been rebranded as Prune. It's a design newsletter. Dirt is about entertainment culture. It has lots of writers who I had not heard of before, who I now enjoy being brought into it, writing every day, new stuff. I would call the energy as an old kind of reminiscent of the energy I felt at the all back in the day, which I always enjoyed. And I'm always impressed that someone can put together something this ambitious. And in the era when most newsletters are like a, a lone wolf operator, this is a, uh, a many-voiced newsletter. So we talked about that. We talked about her journey through working at different publications that led her there. And we talked about the business, which isn't always something we talk about in the show. But if you're interested in the newsletter business, you're going to learn something in this interview. You may think of yourself as an old, but I think of you as having the energy of a young. I thought you were going to say, you may think of yourself as a lone wolf. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Aaron with Daisy Alioto. Welcome, Daisy Alioto. Thanks for having me. You are the co-founder of Dirt, which is a newsletter empire of a, a constellation of newsletters. And well, I think it's probably good for sometimes I feel like it's hard to know if you haven't read a newsletter. So when someone asks you what dirt is, how do you describe it? Well, it depends who's asking. But I would say from a tonal perspective, we've been called the child of vice and the New Yorker, Wow, which is a little bit of an unholy union, but 
it does make sense that those two would have procreated by this point. So I don't dispute that. We've also been called the village voice of the internet, which I think is a very interesting coinage, given the idea that something that as global as the internet could have something as specific and sceny as the village voice, and that we could function that way as an exciting idea to me. From a structural perspective, I've talked about aspiring to be the Condé Nast of newsletters. I think we're sort of in the denouement of the creator economy, where we've seen that creator economy distribution and individual DIY sort of self-service newsletter platforms like Patreon and Substack will essentially follow the same distribution as most creative industries, where you'll have like a top 10% most successful You'll have a sort of like middle class where they can do pretty well running the newsletter, but they can't quit their day job. And then like many, 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 many people who will never really gain traction. And so speaking to this kind of Condé Nast of newsletter idea, Dirt has expressed interest in taking advantage of the opportunity to go out and sort of suck up some of the newsletters that are operating independently, but would rather share resources and benefit from an economy of scale to get really to the next level and be under the umbrella of something with its own brand. I have a weird experience with a lot of sub stacks where I'll like subscribe and then I'll come and I'll be like, drunk at the lighthouse. What, what was this? Who, who is this? Yeah. Like you almost need like a paragraph at the top. That's like, remember this, you subscribe to this. This is the thing you subscribe to. Right. I mean, the same thing has happened to me and with dirt, like you're going to get the dirt banner first thing in your inbox. You're going to see the mushroom iconography. You're going to see our branding and you're going to know that's what you're reading. So it's really just a matter of preference, but I know we might get into more about the distribution model, but when I describe dirt tonally and structurally, that's the language I would fall back on in general. I've been a fan of Dirt for a while, but I admit I went to send you an email asking you to come on the show, and I wrote your name in my Gmail, which is just a good way to find people's email because I've received so many group emails that usually I've got the person's email. And I realized that you had previously done work at both New York Review of Books and Airmail and had sent stories into long form for consideration. And I had never put together that you were the same date, like... I apologize to the 10,000 unread emails in there that I didn't respond to all of the people. But I'm curious, those experiences, like working sort of within the circulation of, of those publications, how did that contribute to your like vision for your own publication? And were you always planning to go this direction and just waiting for the right moment to launch? Yeah, it's funny. I don't really feel like the same Daisy, but I know that I am. Um, my life has changed a lot in a really short amount of time. I worked in the audience development side of media for almost a decade, and I was working in an audience development capacity when I was working with NYRB and Airmail. And I went from that to freelancing. And so I freelanced for a few years, and you know, in less than a five-year time span, essentially, I went from being not a struggling freelancer, but... I think every freelancer is to a certain extent struggling or at least hustling for every dollar to co-founding Dirt and raising $1.2 million, becoming a CEO of the company. And I think probably am 
one of a small number of media CEOs in the United States under the age of 35. So that's like a lot of, that's a lot of change. I was a lot of change for the people around me. And I wouldn't say that this was predestined, but I will say I have always had an entrepreneurial mindset. And I've always had the sensation of feeling too businessy and strategic for the literary world and too literary for the business world. And I have met a lot of people and people who have come into my life who, who feel that they have the same problem in their identity. And I think more and more people are, whichever way they fall on that spectrum, realizing that taste and culture are going to become a way bigger part of business strategy as the fundamentals for business and software become cheaper and cheaper, which is getting accelerated by AI. And if you're on the literary side, you do at this point really need to be thinking like an entrepreneur because the traditional institutions are so resource constrained right now. And most people will not be able to find a role within those institutions or rely on those institutions entirely for their income. So this quality that I have that I think contributed to this journey into having dirt is a quality that a lot of people seem to be cultivating or wanting to cultivate and starting to understand more that for better or worse, technology and culture are intertwined. They're intertwined through distribution and the sort of weird moment that we're at right now with the current state of the internet, the I don't know if I can swear on this. Um, uh, We're self-distributed. Do whatever you like. Okay, great. Yeah. Like the inshittification of Google and the social media platforms that that's a problem for culture, but it's actually also a problem for Silicon Valley. So we're kind of all part of the conversation of what does the internet look like next? And that then feeds into the question of what does media look like? But to speak specifically to Airmail and New York Review of Books, I, in college, I would read Graydon Carter's Vanity Fair. I had a campus job at the library and they had a Vanity Fair subscription. And I think they also probably had a subscription to New York Review of Books, but I wasn't interested in that at the time. I was very interested in the new issue of Vanity Fair. And I had like the Sunday afternoon shift where everyone's like sort of trickling in to start their homework. So it wasn't very busy. And I would just sit there and read it. And I have such a clear memory of that. I have a very clear memory of reading the profile of Marie Colvin that eventually became the film with, I think, Rosamund Pike, and feeling very inspired by that style of journalism profile. And also the, um, you know, what it's called, the mix, right? I think Tina Brown was the one who brought that idea to Condé Nast or just kind of put a name to it, which is like, what is the ideal ratio of celebrity and long form and news And that mix is something that I think about a lot with Dirt. And so when I had the opportunity to do some consulting for Airmail, and I saw that Graydon's signature was really, I mean, it is the brand. The brand is Graydon, right? I was really excited to not only have the opportunity to work with him, but also be inside a newsletter forward company. Because in my capacity working in audience development, that was one type of business model I'd never worked within. So, you know, seeing the the way that they handled the churn of subscribers, seeing how their CMS was set up, all of it was super edifying. New York Review of Books, I was at for an unfortunate 
short amount of time, I was like a pandemic layoff and casualty. I think I'm grateful to the extent that exposed me to more of their archives. I also think that I would have had a very different destiny. People stay there for a very long time. And the version of myself that would have stayed there for a decade is not the version of myself that is running dirt. If you work for New York Review of Books, the cachet of New York Review of Books consumes you, who you are as an individual, your worldview and perspective. The brand will always be bigger than any individual. Dirt is the opportunity to start a brand from scratch. So those are very different lives, very different destinies. And I actually wrote about getting laid off from NYRB for Dirt in one of our early popular pieces where I talked about power, what does power mean, who has power. And it's a question I'm constantly asking myself now that I feel like I'm in a position of power. I want to go back to something you said in the middle there about taste. Sure. I think you've written that, uh, I apologize if I'm paraphrasing you poorly, but that magazines are a container for taste, which is a metaphor I like. And that's sort of easy to understand when you have like an established magazine that's existed for decades. You can go, oh yeah, that's a, that's a New Yorker thing, right? And when you're starting off something that has no track record... You have to sort of define what the taste inside the container is. So as you started to build dirt, like how do you communicate your vision and your taste to other people? I know that like taste can be kind of a like you know it when you see it kind of thing, but like multiple people can't all know it when they see it the same thing without some sense of conversation about what taste is. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think the taste of dirt is something that can be seen in aggregate. And even though we've only existed for a short amount of time, we do have that brand equity of people being able to look at something and say, that's a dirt story. Part of the consistency is the fact that we've never been a big team. And so you have a smaller group of people putting together. Obviously, it's going to be the taste is going to be pretty consistent because, you know, there's periods of time where I've edited the newsletter myself. And so it is a little bit of an externalization of my brain and my interests. But there are general things that we have used to guide us. For example, I always like to say I want us to be relevant and not reactive to what's happening on the internet. And if everyone's talking about it, we're probably not. So that is something that I think guides our taste a little bit. But it is very hard to see the forest for the trees. And most of the time, my my nose is an inch from the tree trunk. So it's helpful actually to do audience surveys or even to put out a call for interns and have emails come in where people are telling us kind of what they think dirt is or what dirt means to them. And I actually posted the other day, one of my favorite pieces of reader feedback where I believe it's a woman who wrote it. She said, people who I think might enjoy dirt. And then she lists off a bunch of qualities like you know, took a course on Virginia Woolf, you were on Tumblr in 2013, you read the style section, you got nylon in college, you know, you're crypto light where you have sort of an intellectual interest in the blockchain, but you don't like everything that goes along with it. And just lists off a bunch of things. And and that's like, amazing. I was like, I want to print this on a t-shirt. I don't think you can buy that type of branding. People try and it feels very inauthentic. So 
yeah, the taste and the brand is built over time through that kind of slow trickle of the daily newsletter. You acquired, uh, I think it was originally called City Pretty, but it's not Peru. Yeah. It's a uh, mm-hmm. Tyler. Tyler Watamanic. Thank you. His uh, newsletter uh, about design. What does it mean to acquire a newsletter? And what is sort of the vision for multiple linked newsletters? Yeah, well, practically it means I paid for every email address that wasn't already subscribed to Dirt. Interesting. And the interesting thing is when we deduped the newsletter list to say, okay, how many emails are we actually buying? We had a 25% overlap. We had a Mm. 25% existing overlap. And what that tells me is we should own this newsletter. You know, Substack, I think one of the best qualities of Substack is their recommendation flywheel. Because of that flywheel, it's easy to see the overlap of, wow, like a large portion of my subscribers are also subscribed to Hunter Harris or Haley Nauman or Today and Tabs. Not all of those overlaps would really cohere as a media brand. I don't think like the top 10 culture substacks should go out and form their own media company just by nature of being in the top 10. You would get probably a really weird combination of Jesse single readers and Blackbird spy plane readers, but there is like some intentionality around these analytics, right? So from a practical perspective, we acquired the emails, we acquired the archives, we put Tyler on retainer. The thought process behind it is related to, yes, the sort of Condé Nast, Hearst, old school magazine company where you have multiple titles underneath one brand with a certain amount of cachet and a known tastemaker reputation. But there's other companies that come up frequently when I talk to people about Dirt's aspirations that are not considered traditional publishing companies. So one of them is LVMH. And, you know, you're a podcaster. I don't know if you listen to Acquired. I can't listen to a two-hour podcast episode, but I will read the transcripts. And I very much enjoyed the LVMH episode. What interests me about LVMH is part of my taste economy thesis that most companies will resemble media companies over the next 10 years is based on this idea that AI makes the new just median piece of content free and cheap, right? So it's like the sweet green salad. It's passable. You'll eat it if you're hungry. That creates another level of media and content above the median, the premium mediocre, which is luxury. We haven't really had conversations about what luxury media means. We have a category of media that covers luxury. We have Departures Magazine. We have Wallpaper, which I worked for, you know, magazines that cover expensive things. What if the expensive thing is the subscription? What if the expensive thing is to be part of the universe of that magazine? And what if what makes people willing to pay for it is the proliferation of things that aren't worth paying for through AI and, you know, the sweet greenification of blog posts and SEO bait and everything that we hate about this current moment. Um, And so that's the sort of Shea Panisse salad, right? So to go back to LVMH, like why does it make sense to talk about LVMH in the same breath as the media industry? They make handbags, right? I think the next LVMH will be an entertainment company or the next number of companies that resemble LVMH. Because what LVMH is at the end of the day is a bunch of distinctive brands that own their own distribution through the parent company and use economies of scale to sustain 
better margins than software, which is really amazing because the whole Mark Andreessen software will eat the world thesis was based on the idea that there's no industry that could have a better margin than software because it's so cheap to create and you can monetize that so effectively. LVMH has better margins. And part of that is shared resources across the brands, right? So when I talk about acquiring newsletters and how that might resemble LVMH, I mean that we can have centralized ad sales, we can have centralized editing, we can have centralized business development, but Dirt and Prune and whatever future verticals we have will have their own distinctive, luxury, human-made, magazine-like qualities, but they'll be digital. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. You're doing all sorts of things. You're publishing a weekly newsletter, there's merchandise, there's events, there's other newsletters being acquired. How do you balance all this and how, and how do you choose sort of like what is the most important thing to be putting resources into at the current juncture that you're working on? Like um, you said, you raised $1.2 million, which is a lot of money, but it's a lot of money that could go pretty quickly if you're not bringing in more money. Mm-hmm. What are the priorities when something like this is getting off the ground? And, and where do you feel like are the sort of essential places to put not just money, but also like your time and focus and the focus of the people who are, who are working on this? Well, content is king. If the newsletters are bad, if the writing is bad, this doesn't succeed, right? Mm-hmm. I think kind of what you're describing is world building which is a very fancy way of saying IP is being monetized across multiple areas. Part of the reason why we call dirt in the expanded field the dirty verse is this acknowledgement that there is this whole universe of dirt, which is, again, like every little piece of brand building contributes to that. So like we have Spotify playlists, we have a discord where people recommend cultural products to one another. What are they reading? What are they cooking? 
What albums are they listening to? So yeah, to your point, it's more than just a newsletter. But if the newsletter isn't excellent, if that isn't in place, if that's inconsistent, the whole thing falls apart. And there are people who would do it backwards and they would, wouldn't succeed and they would get it wrong because they don't have the fundamentals. But if you can get the fundamentals, it's really exciting. And that's what helps us feel a lot bigger than we are, <laughs> you know, and like we've been around for longer than we have. And I'm grateful for that. It's exciting. I'm, I'm so excited to wake up every day and, and have to use the word power again to shape the future of media and the future of this company. There's been like a, a string of publications since we've been doing this podcast, many of which are sadly defunct now that I feel like had a real talent for finding young people who were going to become great writers. Uh, I'll say like the all just an incredible number of people like wrote their first thing for the all. Like I get that quality from what you're doing. How do you find people? Like how do you find people who are going to be able to write but aren't yet writing or aren't yet doing this as a career? Where do you look for young talent? They find me. <laughs> they find us in a lot of cases. They're readers of the newsletter, the supporters okay. of the newsletter. One of my favorite writers who we published this year and she came up frequently in our survey for best articles of the year. Her name's Amelia. I only know her first name and last initial. She emailed me and her email said, I'm a single mother. I live in Georgia. I don't have social media. I love dirt. I'm attaching an article that I wrote about Werner Herzog and was it Timothy Treadwell, Grizzly Man, and being in an abusive relationship. And it was all on spec. And I read everything people send me because I'm terrified of missing talent like that. And it was like, I have to, I want to publish this exactly as it is. And then we published it. People loved it. A couple months later, get another email from Amelia. Another piece totally on spec about growing up in Appalachia, art house cinema, and two films, After Sun and um, Dogtooth. And After Sun like, being relatively recent. So it was, it was timely. And... It was another phenomenal piece. I don't think I changed a single thing in it. These pieces were some of the most popular and memorable pieces we published this year. And to me, it's super important. I didn't mention this when we talked about taste, but I'm not interested in being on the dime square beat. I'm not interested in being New York centric. I'm not even interested in being US centric. It's challenging, but... For people who don't live in New York, just to give a brief, what is the dime square beat and what are you not, not um, trying... <laughs> Just doing sort of reportage on a certain downtown scene. It's not that the scene isn't interesting or there aren't interesting things coming out of it. It's just a bubble. And you can't build a media company that only speaks to people who are familiar with that scene. You have to build a media company for people who live all over the world, all over the US, who don't work in media, who don't work in art, who don't work in fashion, but have an appreciation of these things. That is going to be the bulk of your readership. And so I'm always thinking about speaking to that person. And in the last couple of months, we've published an article from a writer in Casablanca, article from a writer in Prague, probably more than I'm forgetting. So those all came to me. I will say like, I have commissioned stuff off tweets before. So a writer named Tove, and I can't remember her last name, so I apologize. She tweeted, you know, would anyone be interested in a piece about like raising chickens. I don't know exactly how she phrased it, but it just really like pinged my brain. 
And I thought, oh, that sounds great. And of course, then we published it and we didn't even know what category to put it in on the website because we don't have, doesn't really fall into any of our existing verticals. But um, I just so felt like it was a dirt story. So we published that based on a tweet. Our most popular article last year, you know, it went pretty viral. I think it, you know, it's getting some pickup again at the end of the year. It was voted best of the year by our readers. was this piece called Bad Waitress by my friend Becca Shu. And Becca is not somebody I discovered because she's my friend. But I think part of curating dirt is recognizing stories from writers that you know that they haven't written yet or should be writing or wrote and haven't placed. And so this piece that she wrote about being a waitress has sort of been compared to Anthony Bourdain's early writing in The New Yorker that then became Kitchen Confidential. And like what Bourdain did for that back of the house kitchen culture view that people don't get, Becca has done for the front of the house and waitressing. And I knew about the existence of this piece for two or three years. She sent it to me as a friend to look at. I think I emailed back, you should call it Bad Waitress. And I would periodically like, I have all the messages saved. Like every six months, I'd be like, have you sent Bad Waitress to Paris Review? Have you sent Bad Waitress to Astra? Which of course, lived for less time than this piece did, which is sad. (laughs) RIP. And she never did. And then finally, it's like, I woke up, literally, I woke up this June and was like, I have a media company. So I texted her and was like, send Bad Waitress to me, please. Like, I know there's more prestigious places you could place it, but like, I'll pay you well. I'll give you the star treatment. I'll give you the creative freedom. You know, please, please, please don't publish it. This is an amazing piece. And I just knew it in my gut the first time I read it. And So part of it is like that. It's like talent spotting in the talent you already know in the ways that they're not kind of expressing themselves and giving them the creative license and freedom. So that part of it is so fun. But I wish that was the bulk of my job. But the more of my job is like calling the IRS. You know what I mean? Like I'm doing the business piece too. But when you get to do the talent spotting piece and see something like that go start to finish and get illustrations and see people respond to it, I mean, that's what it's all about. But the business is what makes it possible. You wrote a piece, I want to say this was maybe like right before COVID, I think for Playboy, about going to this like micro nation within Lithuania. What's the country called again? I'm sorry, I forget the name. Yushipos. Yes. Yeah, that's a deep cut. Thank you. <laughs> right on. Well, what I think is sort of, I noticed in, in that piece, it's about like a tiny country and, and the piece is also sort of about the history of tiny breakaway nations. And the way that you write about it, I think like in a different context could be kind of like someone like making fun of it, like making fun of like, oh, these like stupid failed experiments. And it's fairly generous to the idea and to the like the idea that someone might do something like that as sort of an experiment to prove a point more so than like we're really trying to practically start a country. And I'm interested in like when you're writing, like how you sort of think about subjects and your own relation to them. It it seemed like in that piece, you were sort of putting yourself in the shoes of someone who wanted to start a micro nation. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that piece and, you know, your approach to it. Yeah, I think I leaned pretty heavily on 
some of the ideas that are expressed in Talo Calvino's Invisible Cities, which is one of my favorite books, which is like every city is in a sense the idea of a city. Every state is in a sense the idea of a state. And that the idea of a state in certain circumstances can be powerful enough to unite people around shared principles. In this instance, in Yuzhapus, the idea of the micronation was really a way of revitalizing the neighborhood in uh, Vilnius, which had previously been the Jewish neighborhood, and an astronomical proportion of Lithuanian Jews were killed during the Holocaust. Uh, the neighborhood was empty. It was crime-ridden. And so this sort of absurd idea, it was almost like performance art. Like, could we revitalize this neighborhood through the performance art of creating a nation state? But it worked so well that Eugibus is like the most rapidly gentrifying neighborhood in Vilnius. And I talk about that in the piece. And I think that that's actually a cycle that we see play out in a lot of cities, right? Like, the idea of Brooklyn as a brand is not so different from the idea of Eugibus as a micronation in the sense that it's adopted by artists first, it becomes creative, it becomes cool, and then money and tourism follow. And so being able to say, like, this isn't just this oddity, these aren't just crazy, eccentric people, this is really a cycle of how places gain an identity and how architecture isn't just buildings, it's ideas and structures that we essentially create in our minds, I think helped me kind of put that piece together and figure out like the right entry point. What, like doing this where you are the editor and the publisher of this newsletter, how, how do you feel like it's changed you as a writer? Like when you think about your own work, how, how has this project changed your relationship to writing? I don't think I was ever super precious about my writing, but if I was, I'm 0% precious about it now. Every time, I mean, every time I write for dirt, it saves the company money. <laughs> so that's like kind of changed my relationship with my writing, which is like. So these an anonymous be... people that you've cited are actually all just you writing under different, different names to save cash. No, I have not done that yet. But being able to pinch hit content, whether it's an announcement, you know, a shift in the editorial schedule, it means like, oh man, like it's, it's Tuesday. We don't have something for Thursday. You know, nothing will make you sit down and write 800 words in 20 minutes, like just needing to get it done. And that is a change that I've seen in myself. Like I would encourage everyone to be less precious about their writing. But for me, that's kind of what my relationship to it is. I do write things for dirt that take longer and planned out over a long period of time. I'll probably write one more thing before the end of the year that I'm sort of planning now in my phone notes and in my head. When I actually sit down to write it, it comes pretty quickly. And I think it's just because with running the business, I just don't have the luxury of it not coming quickly. And there is some interesting discourse about writer's block on Twitter this week. And I feel very strongly that writer's block, I don't believe in it as a concept. I think sometimes we don't want to work. I think sometimes it's hard to work. I think we might think of writing as more of our art than work. But the point that I made is, if a chef isn't cooking, do we say they have chef's block or do we say that they're not cooking? And I'm in a part of my life where I always have to be cooking um, because it's not just about me. It's about the success of the idea of dirt. So that's my relationship to my writing. I'm sure my writing has gotten better and it's faster and I do think it's consistent, but I don't have an editor. That's the other thing. I, I self-edit. Sometimes I'm able to send it to somebody else in 
the Dirt ecosystem. You know, we've had contributing editors and contributing writers, Jocelyn Silver, Terry Nguyen, both have looked at my writing in the past and it's so helpful. Or also to a friend outside of Dirt. But one thing I do miss is the experience of being deeply edited, which is not an experience I've had really in the past few years. So, you know, what happens to your writing when you're not being deeply edited? I guess we'll find out. <laughs> a lot of the things that, that you focus on are adjacent to like artistic industries, film, music, fine art. And it feels to me, and maybe this is from an, you know, maybe this is my own limited perspective, like some of those things, there's just less to write about every year than there was the year before, you know, like, I don't know. It's like, there's the like, uh, Oppenheimer discourse and the Barbie discourse. And like, you know, there aren't like hundreds of independent films coming out to write about. There's a certain narrowing of some of these fields in terms of at least what's getting like funded. How do you deal with that? Like as a publisher, like how, how do you deal with sort of the like adjacent industries contracting and the sort of like less stuff to write about elements, or do you not perceive that to be true? I think there's more, but it's not coming out of institutions. Okay. So, you know, we do write about independent stuff. One example I'll give is Chelsea Hodgson, who's an amazing essayist and writer and teacher of writing, started her own imprint this year called Rose Books. And the first book that she published was by my friend Jeff Rickley, who a lot of people know as the front man of Thursday and other bands. And it was his first novel, essentially, but it drew heavily from his life in addiction and then in a very sort of unique treatment for addiction that involved taking very powerful psychoactive drugs that aren't even legal in the United States and is structured in a very interesting way because he's also a very big fan of Otello Calvino, which I think is part of why we've connected. Stuff like that, that book sold more copies than a lot of literary novels from major big five publishing houses. And I think showed a lot of people that like, independent publishers with great taste with writers who have an existing platform and point of view can really do things to rival the institutions that we revere. And the more stuff that comes out like that in every industry, the more we're sort of seeking it out and trying to curate it. Another example is like perfume. Dirt has published a lot of writing on perfume. Maybe you can guess one of the future verticals we have our eyes on from that. I think it's maybe for people paying attention, probably pretty clear that we're headed in that direction. But um, wait, 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 I have uh, to pause you. So what would a perfume, I'm not saying you're going to do one, but like, yeah, yeah. what what would a perfume vertical look like? How, this is a great example of like, I don't, I wouldn't even know the first thing about like what gets covered in perfume. Oh my God. Well, there's so much to say about perfume. And right now, a lot of great writing about perfume is happening on Fragrantica, which is, a website to review perfume that has not been updated, you know, in probably like 10 years, it has a terrible UX and some of the greatest writing I've ever read in my life is, is in these perfume reviews. There's so much to say about perfume. And the amazing thing about perfume as a category and ultimately as a business market is there's no digital experience of perfume. So as people sort of retreat to experiences that feel like the antithesis of the online machinification, the online blanding, nobody is going to benefit more than the perfume industry. So one of the pieces we wrote this year was about Marissa Zappas, who is an independent perfumer in Brooklyn. Um, she created a perfume that was an homage to Elizabeth Taylor. We ran an interview with her. And so, yeah, I mean, honestly, like 
to take the contrarian view, I think there's actually too much interesting stuff to talk about. But you're right from a mass culture perspective and sort of get at this in an interview I did with W. David Marks on his book, Status and Culture. It does feel like there's nothing new. It does feel like everything's static. And part of the role of the critic, as David you know, has repeatedly said across multiple venues, including our own newsletter this week, the role of the critic is to surface that stuff and highlight it so that mass culture doesn't become totally stagnant, but is constantly being renewed by the embrace of things that initially are like repulsive to the average consumer and then become accepted, interesting in this sort of like trickle down effect. Wait, I'm still on the perfume thing. I need to ask a couple oh, okay. follow up questions because I think this is actually a sure. good way to drill into like what you do and what I know nothing about because I've never heard of Fragrantica. Is that what it was called? Fragrantica? Fragrantica, yeah. So perfume. Yeah. You or someone who writes for you is writing about perfume. Mm -hmm. what, like, what's the story? Like, what do you try and get across about uh, a perfume or a perfumer? Like, how do you create a newsletter about a fragrance? Well, it's not so different from prune. I mean, how do you create a newsletter about a chair, right? Right. It's okay, the story sorry. of the people that make the chair. It's the story yeah. of the people that sit in the chair. It's the story of the way that the chair enters our home, makes us feel the history of the, the chair, way that we identify with the chair. Exactly. Like, and obviously to me, it's not an interesting story. If it's just, Hey, this perfume exists. That's a trade blog. Right. Yep. But there's so many interesting stories to tell about our relationship with scent and somebody who writes about it really beautifully. In addition to other things, I don't know if you've ever had her as a guest, but Katie Kelleher. Don't believe so. Although I do forget people who've been on the show sometimes. So if she has been on the Write show, I down. apologize. Okay. <laughs> writing it down. <laughs> She wrote a book called The Ugly History of Beautiful Things um, okay. about perfume, about pearls, about fur, about leather, about all the things in our life that are sort of aesthetically beautiful and the hidden history behind how they're created. And there's just so many stories like that to tell. And she's written about perfume for us and, you know, smoky scents, like what gives it that smoky quality? Why do we gravitate towards them? So I think it's super underserved. I would love to start serving it as soon as possible. And it's it's in the zeitgeist. It's you're gonna hear about perfume a lot more, I promise. Is part of what makes that interesting for you the lack of the immediate digital experience? Because I remember like when Pitchfork first started running like a like a review of a single, and then there would be like the YouTube embed that was the mm -hmm. thing. And there was a th certain thing that sort of like went off in my mind where I was just like, why don't I just hit play on this and listen to it and not read this paragraph about it? Like the minute I could have the actual experience in basically as much time as the red experience, I think I became a little bit less interested in like going on Pitchfork every day. Mm. I guess, but I mean, fashion writing exists. You actually might be interested in writing by Vivian Medithi, who is a writer who um, does scent playlists. So okay. Viv has their own newsletter. I think it's called Scent and Song. Okay. But Viv has also done a couple of scent playlists for us and basically pairs a perfume with a song. So there is a YouTube embed, but the writing is about why this perfume is representative of this song or why this song is representative of the perfume. And when you read it, you really do get a sense for what both of them sound like. I think to go back to Eusebius, to go back to writing that I've done, I have a very, very deep interest in ekphrasis. 
So the stuff that is hard to describe to me is the most exciting. So the challenge is really the old problem of like, how do you take something that exists in one medium and put it into another medium, which is text, whether it's building, a painting, a perfume. That is fundamentally interesting to me. Every writer that I love does it very well. Every theorist I love. So I don't know. The harder it is, the more interested I am. That's just the way that I am. I wouldn't have a startup if that wasn't the case. For people who thinking about building a newsletter related business what advice would you have like what what have you learned over time about what works in this format and what kind of people it's going to work for well i mean my biggest advice is ignore a lot of advice because if you go on twitter there is a whole culture of newsletter growth hacking there are fundamentals to understand about referrals building an audience Everything that made companies like Morning Brew successful, I think there are things to learn from that toolkit. You do want to get recommended by other newsletters. You do want to make sure people are opening the newsletter. You do want to make sure you have great subject lines. You do want to A-B test those subject lines sometimes. Sure, those are the fundamentals. But to me, is the content great? Do you have an idea of who your audience is? Are you really building a community with your readership? Those questions are more interesting, and I think in the long term, help you succeed. There are people who are going to simply want to like growth hack a B2B or AI driven newsletter from zero to a hundred thousand and sell it to somebody else. And that's fine. But I'm talking about hopefully a 10 year media business and long beyond. And so if you're building in that direction, the fundamentals are less about growth and more about getting the editorial right, getting the audience right making sure that this represents a world that people are really going to want to evangelize and not really kind of doing short-term hack type stuff, even if it means your growth is like slower in the short term. Hey, that's the Long Form Podcast. This is our last new episode for 2023. So thanks to everyone for listening all year. Thanks to my guest, Daisy Alioto. Thanks very much to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Gabriela Saldivia for editing this episode. Thanks to Susan Peterson for doing the show notes. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. I think we're going to have a couple of our favorite episodes from this year running as reruns. Uh, over the break. So if you missed those, check them out. If not, I'll see you back here in January with brand new episodes of the Longform Podcast. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
Questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.